0: Does he know we wonder what kind of God he is? Does he know that because of the things he does and doesn't do, we sometimes lie awake at night asking questions about his character, his faithfulness, the plausibility of his plan? If he knows, why does he persist? This is a story about trust It's a story about daily bread and Sabbath rest and the lies we tell ourselves about the past. And it's a story about how the deeply human desire for self-sufficiency may be far more dangerous than even the most severe hunger or thirst. I'm Justin Gerhardt, welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. The mothers are beginning to panic. Their children have stopped crying, stopped complaining, and become lethargic. They need water. It's not just the children, of course. Everyone in this massive caravan, thousands upon thousands of men and women of every age, swallow again and again, trying to rid their throats of the ever-present dust. Cows lift their noses, searching for the scent of some far-off oasis, but nothing. It's been three days. Memories of the plagued Egyptians play in the Israelites' minds. How is this different? If this continues, they'll turn this wilderness into a mass grave, a valley of dry bones bleached by this merciless sun. Why did they leave? Moses breathes heavily, following the cloud and leading his people across another mile of sand. What is Yahweh doing? But then, water. Fathers break into a run, carrying their children in their arms. Grandmothers scramble towards sweet relief, their hands trembling in excitement. Finally, knees hit the ground. A pair of cupped hands lifts the water to chapped lips. Liquid splashes onto a ravenous tongue and immediately is sprayed into the air. A reflex. This water is bitter, salty, metallic. Something, it's undrinkable. No, no. Alarm rises. Hysteria takes hold. A plaintive cry erupts from the mouths of the desperate Hebrews. What are we going to drink? They look to Moses. Moses looks to Yahweh. Cries out. Pleads. Why, why would you do this? And then, a response. Yahweh turns Moses' attention to a tree. The old man's brow furrows. He nods, rises, walks toward the tree, breaks a branch off in his hands. The people are watching now. Aaron, Zipporah, Miriam, Gershom, the innumerable mass of refugees behind them, all eyes fixed on Moses as he moves toward the spring, the leaves of the branch fluttering like rattles in some priestly ritual. He stands at the edge of the pool and lifts his hand, raising this living staff above the bitter waters. Moses whips his arm downward and releases his grip, hurling the branch at the shining pool. Water splashes back, exploding around the shape of the projectile, liquid shrapnel colliding with Moses' cheeks and forehead and nose. A drop rolls down his lip and into his mouth, onto his tongue. His eyes brighten. It's sweet, pure, perfect. Moses turns, his face flashing, the healed, healing water rippling before him. Drink! Drink! after the water Yahweh meets with Moses Moses thanks him surely for providing for them but even as Moses speaks Does he find himself wondering why Yahweh would wait so long to do it? Surely he could have given them water on day one. Why not do that? Why let them get thirsty at all? Was he toying with them? Yahweh heard surely the things the people said when they got thirsty. They cried out for Egypt. Why would he let them wonder whether he'd take care of them? Why have them asking what kind of God he is? Yahweh smiles, an empathetic smile, perhaps. Sometimes answering a question before it's asked ensures that no one truly hears the answer. Finally, deity speaks. The hairs on the back of Moses' neck rise as he takes in Yahweh's message for the people. If you will carefully obey me, Yahweh, your God, do what is right in my sight, pay attention to my commands, keep all my statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians. A pause perhaps. For I am Yahweh, who heals you. And then the cloud moves. Do the children cry when their parents lead them from their precious little spring? Is it not just the children? How long will it be before they get to drink again? Why can't they just stay here? Reluctantly, they follow the mist. But no sooner have they broken camp and begun journeying than the cloud stops through the swirling, milky vapor, Moses can just make out the shape of a... Is that a palm tree? A date palm? No, scores of date palms. That many trees means there must be a spring. But there is not a spring. There are twelve of them. A dozen springs, pure water spilling over rocks and poppling into pools and reflecting the astonishing white tower billowing above That night the children of Abraham gather around campfires that flicker beneath the blazing column at the center of their makeshift village Bellies fill with fruit snatches of laughter and song rise toward the heavens like embers blown by the wind Eventually Yawning punctuates the stories, and soon they douse the fires and join the children slumbering inside the tents, nodding off to the sound of many waters. Around midnight, perhaps, a man glances up through a gap in his tent, notices one of the trees, watches the palm fronds swaying lazily, but then his gaze wanders to the center of the tree's crown. The dates are all gone. Moses looks out at the faces of the Israelites, bracing himself for this, Meeting, they've called. They're hungry, and angry, and afraid. It's been 45 days since they walked away from their slave masters in pursuit of the swirling cloud. The grove was a blessing, a miracle, some might say, but they ate through the fruit of those trees in no time, and the cloud pulled them on from the springs, further into the desert. Now, six weeks into this, absconding, with sufficient food nowhere in sight, they are beginning to realize there could never be enough date palms in this forsaken place to sustain a throng their size. And if not trees, what else? Are they to hunt enough mice to feed a million people? Fear flowers, and with its putrid scent lacing the air, the Israelites lash out. If only we had died by Yahweh's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Moses' furrowed brow rises, surely in surprise. Is that how you remember? But they're not done. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this entire multitude die of hunger. Moses' pulse quickens, anger churning inside him. The Israelite delegation stands their ground, demanding an explanation, a plan, something. A father, perhaps, runs his hands over his little girl's hair, unable to ignore the steady emergence of her cheekbones. And Yahweh, Yahweh, nods. They have seen their need, their insufficiency, the absence of a natural solution, at last. time to initiate the supernatural. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. Rain bread? Moses blinks as Yahweh continues. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. Food, enough food, and every day. Yahweh smiles, but then sighs as he looks to the future. He knows their hearts, the twisted pathways of their far from Eden minds. The prospect of daily bread gives joy to the hungry, but the full, they quickly begin feeling as though enough isn't enough. This way, says Yahweh to Moses, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Only enough for each day. And on the sixth day, When they prepare what they bring in it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days twice as much on the sixth day why would that be but there is no explanation the rushing waters of yahweh's voice dissipate and moses goes to tell aaron what he's heard this evening aaron's voice rings out across the gathered multitude you will know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. A cocked eyebrow. And in the morning, you will see Yahweh's glory, because he has heard your complaints against him. The people balk at this last bit. Uh, No, no, our our complaints have been against you, their eyes contend. Who would be foolish enough to pick a fight with a god, especially this Yahweh? But Aaron continues He has heard your complaints about him. For who are we, he gestures to himself and Moses, that you complain about us? If the people shake their heads in objection, Moses steps forward, unable to contain himself. Yahweh will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning. For he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against Yahweh. Eyes turned toward the cloud, billowing, boiling with energy, mystery, presence. The pulses of the people quickened. Golden hour arrives, turning the Israelite camp the color of Sinai primrose and the flowers of the rabeel. Shelters made from Egyptian fabric stretch in every direction as far as the eye can see. Pens of livestock graze and lays. Smoke from countless fires trails toward the heavens as old women warm their hands by the burning brush. Sand covers the ground swept into tiny ridges by the wind and interrupted by the odd clump of grass. Rock formations loom high, scarred and beautiful, crumbling and solid. Children chase one another, darting like rose finches among the tents as parents scold and call, gathering their families into the relative safety of their textile huts. And just as the sun retires, they appear, first wisps of dark shapes in the sky, ribboning closer and closer. Then multiplication, tendrils become great spiraling masses, swooping and circling and finally alighting atop and before and between the startled Hebrews tents. Ruffle of feathers, brown traced with white in pied beauty, plumed heads bob, and staccato calls flick new music throughout the camp. Yahweh's quail, summoned in power and offered in love. The capture is riotous fun, surely. Children employed as partners, quail jumping and flapping, but not flying away. Men and women falling and laughing, grasping again and again, and then success, In a few minutes' time, the fires are stoked and families sit together cross-legged, plucking feathers, giggling, and singing. Perhaps a new verse or two added to the song they wrote a few weeks ago as they stood at the edge of the sea. They sleep full-bellied and then wake to a new wonder. Yahweh tips his cup spilling dawn from the east and illuminating dewdrops clustered on grass, on their tents, on the thorn bushes and the craggy limestone. Slowly but surely, the sun's energy breaks the bonds chaining the water molecules and the once liquid flies away as vapor, free. But the evaporation leaves something behind. Perhaps it's a little boy who discovers it first Chasing a lizard across a rock, he notices flakes on the stone, fine as frost. They're everywhere. He did not see this yesterday. What is it? This, Moses explains as the question travels throughout the camp, is the bread Yahweh has given you to eat. Eyes grow wide. This is food. It's all over the place, like one of the plagues in Egypt, but good. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts for each person in your tent. Someone tastes it. It, it's, It's bread, and it tastes like honey. The people scatter, scooping it hungrily into mouths and baskets, They memorialize their wonder by naming the stuff manna, which means, what is it? Yahweh smiles. It is love. As the Hebrews make their way across the landscape, harvesting the manna, some are careful to gather only what they need for the day. Others, though, slaves to a scarcity mindset, let fear govern their gathering. Their baskets are laden with surplus. A reasonable security measure. Who knows whether Yahweh will feel as gracious tomorrow. But when they arrive back at the tent, the amount has mysteriously changed. There is only two quarts impossible. Surrender would seem the most rational course, but fallen ingenuity is persistent. A few enterprising souls find a loophole. If they can only gather two quarts, then they'll simply eat less. A miserly dinner and the uneaten manna is squirreled away. Best to ration in case of unforeseen need, But when they return to their hoarded food the next morning, it's full of worms and rot. Meanwhile, fresh manna waits outside, gifted by Yahweh, daily bread. And where is Moses in the midst of this learning curve? Moses, incredulous at the Israelites' lack of faith, is angry these people. The coming days play host to a new routine. Wake up, walk outside, and wonder at the what-is-it bread flaked across the ground like freshly fallen snow. Gather not too much, nor too little, and rest in the provision of the Almighty. Come mid-morning, the risen sun burns off what manna is left, melting it away. And then an emergent weekly routine as well. Five days pass, and then on the sixth day, they gather twice as much food, four quarts apiece. For what reason, they still do not know. To find out, a delegation of elders goes to Moses reports the people's obedience to this strange command and inquires as to the reasoning behind it. Moses grins, perhaps, excited to share this new rule of Yahweh's. This is what Yahweh has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Eyes narrow in confusion. Complete rest? What about the day's work? Scavenging for berries, mending tunics, milking the sheep, baking and boiling and Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. But the maggots, not this time. This is a Sabbath to Yahweh. And so the people obey. Friday is full of extra preparation, and the leftovers from the double portion of manna gathered that morning sit quietly inside their tents, awaiting a new kind of day. When the sun rises on Saturday, it happens slowly, then quickly. One or two of the Israelites sneak out of their tents to gather manna before they're caught, but their hearts lurch at the sight of the bare ground. It's gone. How long? Comes Yahweh's voice through Moses. Will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. And so, finally, they obey. Revisit the leftovers from the day before they were afraid would be rotten. Still fresh. Share relieved smiles over breakfast. And then... What? What do you do if you don't work? These former slaves, acclimated over the course of generations to 14-hour days of toil, scratch their heads as they process the idea of rest. Yahweh sighs at their brokenness, but smiles as he ushers them into a new way of being. Welcome to a new kingdom, a place where there is always enough, a realm in which your self-reliance is meant to shrivel and die, even as you flourish and thrive. This is not empire, but shalom. Welcome back to your first king. As the day goes on, stories are told. Songs are sung and games are played and love is made. Naps are napped. And even though they have not lifted a finger, everyone goes to sleep on a full stomach. Rephidim, the latest in a string of new places to which the cloud and fire have led them. Manna in the morning, as usual, but something is wrong here. There is no spring, no river, no water at all. Not again. Why would Moses give us water to drink? A reasonable request, perhaps, but it is not a request. This is a demand born of ingratitude and mistrust, an indictment on Moses, but it's not about Moses at all. Why are you complaining to me? Moses's head shakes, his face twisted in frustration, his hands outstretched, palms toward the heavens. Why are you testing Yahweh? But thirst is a powerful thing. They shake their own heads now, their own palms and shoulders raised in exasperation. Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The volume rises and the gaggle of plaintiffs grows, the crowd doing what crowds do best at attracting a bigger crowd. Voices rise, hysteria rears its head again, just as before, but this time Did someone just grab a rock? What should I do with these people? Perhaps Moses has stolen away for a moment, or perhaps he's dropped to his knees in the midst of the growing mob. Rage and fear vie for position inside the old man. In a little while, Yahweh, they will stone me. And then, The sound of the shouting voices is suddenly eclipsed by the voice. Can Moses' heart speed up and calm down at the same time? Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Horeb, he thought this terrain looked familiar, the place where he first met this wild god, the place of fire, now promised to become a wellspring of water. Thank you, Yahweh. This god is mighty. There is no doubt as to his power. He listens, too, hears Moses' prayers, but is he good? He brought them out of Egypt, yes, but then, then what? Out here in this wilderness, hunger and thirst, crouching behind every rock, he brought the manna, yes, but only when they cried out for help. And then the water. Why did he wait three days and then lead them to bitter water? He did transform it and then he led them to those springs but, but now again a lack of water to be remedied sure now that they've come to Moses and Moses has come to him but this temporary lack for what purpose is he toying with them or has he been waiting for them to ask surely he knows what they need this is an exceedingly uncomplicated formula food and water and shelter equals survival so what's the why wait until these moments of need why wait until they're on their knees why force them back to him again and again like children The wrinkled lines on the faces of the elders wrinkle further as Moses comes to a stop. There is no spring here, no gushing waterfall, no sign of life, just a hulking monolith, a towering expanse of granite reaching from earth to sky or from sky to earth. The old men watch as Moses moves, staff in hand, toward a boulder a swollen protuberance of the mountain. Do they get impatient when Moses pauses, staring for a moment at a thorn bush nearby? What is he doing? Why won't he? And then Moses faces the boulder, reaches a hand up, and begins climbing. He scrambles up, maybe ten feet or so, standing now on the rock. The elders have stopped whispering to one another, all eyes fixed on Moses. He lifts his hand, raising his staff above the stone. As he does, something changes. The air gets thicker, the sun shines brighter. Why are there goosebumps on their flesh? It's as if there is some presence looming before Moses inhabiting the atmosphere but their wonderings are interrupted by a blur of motion Moses whips his arm downward swinging the end of his staff at the dusty rock beneath him the elders flinch but do not look away as soon as the staff hits the stone it changes cracks and then splits wide parted like the sea that night and then water gushing forth from the cleft of the rock, a crystalline cataract spilling life from Horeb's wound. The dry ground and the elders' feet now soaked as they stand in the surging flow. Go, says Moses. Go and bring the people. Yahweh has given them water to drink. I will call this place Massah. And Meribah, trial and quarreling with these people and their faithlessness. Is Yahweh among us or not, they ask. How could they wonder? Two Quartz Aaron nods as his younger brother points him to the ground surrounding the camp. His belly still full of quail, Aaron walks out to witness a wonder. Flakes of white everywhere, adorning rocks clustered on clumps of grass, fine as frost. Moses' words ring in his ears as Aaron runs his fingers along this bread from heaven. Put two quarts of the manna in a container, and then place it before Yahweh to be preserved throughout our generations. Very well, but how long can bread last? Yahweh smiles. Longer than you think. A hundred years from now, when the people of Israel look to the nations around them, tempted by the apparent proximity of their idols and gods, this manna will sit inside an ark, inside the tabernacle, bearing witness to the God who came close enough to dust the ground with bread. Two hundred fifty years from now, when the people demand a king like their neighbors, unsatisfied with this strange theocracy of theirs, how could an invisible God govern them? this manna will bear silent witness to how practical Yahweh's presence can be. 350 or so years from now, when King Solomon feels the pull to search for satisfaction in learning or in sex or in achievement, this manna, still fresh after all these years resting inside the ark, inside the new temple, this manna, will bear witness to the God who satisfies. They will again and again forget what happened here in the wilderness. But Yahweh will not stop reminding them, inviting His people to remember how He gave them everything they needed, every time they asked. Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to season four. So much work has gone on behind the scenes. These last couple of months, I've been researching and writing and recording. And Kendall has been scoring like a madman. And we are so excited to be back and to be able to share the rest of the Exodus story with you. I'm also fresh off a tour of Holy Ghost Stories live shows in Ireland. Uh, Maybe you can hear that in my voice. Uh, So there's been a lot going on between episodes five and six. And I want to say this to every one of you who are patrons of Holy Ghost Stories and support what's happening here month after month, even when new episodes are not being released. Thank you. Your trust that fruit is being produced, even though the tree looks dormant, Well that means the world, and your generosity has enabled me to do the unglamorous, behind-the-scenes work that is an essential but inevitable prelude to every episode release. Same goes to those of you who've given one-time contributions to the production of this season. Kendall and I could not be more grateful to be able to do this work and share these stories with the world. I'm sending an email out in the next day or two with some great stuff about this episode, uh, including why I say the word hands exactly seven times, and some things I discovered during my time at a Bedouin camp in the Sinai Wilderness, prepping for this season. I'll also include some photos from the Holy Ghost Stories Ireland tour and a bit about what we've experienced on that. Uh, If you're not signed up, you are missing out. You really should jump in. You can sign up for free at holyghoststories.org or in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Speaking of this episode, it was made possible by the extraordinary generosity of Dale and Rita Brown. Thank you both. Your desire to enable great kingdom storytelling is a beautiful thing. Thanks, too, to every one of the incredible patrons of this show and to our kings and queens of patronage, the Rackentours: Tours David, John, and Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Travis, Steve, Sam, Daniel, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, John, Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Cheyenne, Helen, Debbie, Scott, and Susan, Elizabeth, Rick, Derek, Jeff, Maddie, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Steven, Bill, and Trina, Jessica, Kim. Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie, you guys are bread from heaven. If you want to join these folks, just Google Patreon Holy Ghost Stories. There's a link in the show notes. Episode seven drops in two weeks, and I think you're going to love it. Until next time.